when all is said and done, I believe, and I've been saying it for years, I believe that my band will go down as the preeminent musical group of our generation. The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. Name a band from the last 30 years that's more associated with alternative music than the Smashing Pumpkins. I'll wait. From their beginnings in Chicago in the late 80s through superstardom of the 90s, dissolution in the 2000s, and then the subsequent reinvention in the 21st century, the Smashing Pumpkins have a history of putting their artistic vision in front of commercial concerns, which we thank them for. This is the History of Alternative Podcast. I'm John Manley with James Van Osdell. And the History of Alternative Podcast is sponsored by Wintrust. Go to Wintrust.com for locations and information. This is our part one of a deep dive into the Smashing Pumpkins. And our guest this week, he's our lover. He's our zero. He is the face in our dreams of glass. He is <laughs> Billy Corgan. Billy, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. It's uh, quite the intro. We try. We try. So as, <laughs> as the Smashing Pumpkins, you guys are weeks away from releasing a brand new double album, Seer. Um, let's, let's start back at the beginning, or, or almost the beginning, I guess, like the real big breakout moments. Uh, let's go back to the first double album you put out in 1995. You're coming out of Siamese Dream, and we go into Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Uh, doing that, coming out of a massive, your breakout big record, going straight into a double album, that was kind of ballsy, wasn't it? Uh, well, you know, the record company was against it and tried to talk me out of it and tried to say, you know, even Guns N' Roses had to put out uh, Use Your Illusion. Was it, what, what, oh, what, what was the record? Uh, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. One and yeah, it was Use Your Illusion, sorry. Uh, even, they even pointed to Guns N' Roses and said, they're a bigger band than you, and they even had to put their record out in two parts, and I refused. And somehow in my stubborn refusal, they backed down. <laughs> I don't know how I got away with it, but they, they, they went along with it eventually. So looking back, because it is a history of alternative podcast, looking back on 30 plus years, are there albums, songs, moments that you think hold up as your best or the ones that you're most proud of? Yeah, but I think it's always contextual. You know, I think it's, I think if you're talking about commercial success, well, it's obvious. It's the ones that sold the most and got the most airplay and all that type of stuff. But that was never how we quantified our success. Um, of course, when you're successful, it, it does become part of your story because then you start to become, then the things you do that aren't as successful start to get measured against the higher high watermark that you've set, not someone else's set. But um, I look at, I look at every period as sort of like, what did I hope to accomplish and what did we accomplish? And so I tend to look at it more along those lines. Like I'll give you an example. Um, uh, we, we had put out Gish. It had done really, really well in terms of sales, but you know, we had very little radio play. Our first real radio play was with a song called Drown, which was on the single soundtrack, which most people would remember, you know, was more of a, a grunge type of thing. So that for us was a watershed moment because it proved that we could be ourselves, but also still make kind of popular music and get played on the radio. So my, most people wouldn't necessarily look at that. It's not, it's finally remembered by Smashing Pumpkin songs, but I don't think it gets much radio play anymore. Um, but for us, that was a hugely important moment. So to me, that's just as important as, bullet with butterfly wings or something you know what i mean because sure. it was it was a paradigm shifter for us and usually where we shifted paradigms was where i usually akin success to what follows afterwards is more like the people kind of show up late to the party so you've experimented with your sound like you have a lot of incarnations with this band even and you've experimented with your sound over the years is 
is the label Smashing Pumpkins a blessing and a curse? As if you decide to release music as Smashing Pumpkins, that comes with specific expectations from a listener, right? Sure. For, for a long time, I really rebelled against the idea yeah. because I was like, well, it's my band and I can decide what it is. And eventually you got to come to a kind of a, a real understanding that, no, it's actually the public who decides who you are. Um, that doesn't mean you have to live with it or accept it, but at some point they're the ones who kind of voted. They're the ones who told you what they respond to. You know, it is a, it is an enterprise between artist and, and listener. Um, and once I was able to kind of make peace with that and kind of look at the audience from a different perspective on why they wanted what they wanted and what they were interested in, it, it allowed me a freedom that maybe I didn't have. I, it, it's like, that's why I can say it is you start to feel like you're in a jail that, that you built, but somehow you don't have the key to the front door anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And then you ultimately realize, no, no, this is, this is, this is actually a really incredible thing because the minute you put Smashing Pumpkins on it, the pressure goes up, the expectations go up, but that's a good thing. That's based on good things. You know, it's not based on failure. That's based on success and accomplishment and endurance and people really connecting you with the, to a particular moment in their lives. Um, and so once I kind of wrap my head around that, I, I, I've really grown to enjoy it. Was there a moment where you had that? What, like, what was your realization? Like what, what gave you that piece? Um, it's a, it's a really long process because the, the band was born as a sort of a rebellious contrarian type of thing. Like we hated the politics of alternative rock. So we were like the hipster killers, you know? So eventually when you become like, the sound of alternative rock, like you become the mainstream or you become the thing that people compare things to. It's like, well, how do you, how do you become the rebel if you're not the rebel anymore? You know, you're, you're, you're inside the house. You're not outside. Sometimes. <laughs> another, another four walled analogy from, from the rat in the cage guy. Uh, it's always about constriction. Um, where am I trying to go with this? I, to answer your question, I think it was, uh, Jimmy and I brought the band back in 2007 and went through a very contentious period. I tried to continue the band after Jimmy left in 2009. And I had to learn really the hard way that, that the fun in it is finding that sweet spot between the audience and yourself. If I, if I wanted to make music that only I enjoyed, well, I could do that and call it something else. But to call it Smashing Pumpkins and expect somebody to not include what came before was kind of silly and that's on me. And once I made peace with that, like, oh, this is kind of a cool thing. The analogy I, I used to make in the, in the studio, and it's, it's a poor analogy, is like, look, if I saw a movie and it was Spider-Man 17, and I went and I didn't get the web, you know what I mean, and the swinging through the, I, I'd be like, why well, call it Spider-Man? In fact, somebody recently asked me about the Invisible Man movie that came out with, because they're rebooting the, you know, the, the, those Universal movies. And I was like, outside of the couple gimmicks with the invisible man, it's like, I didn't feel like I was watching the invisible man. I felt like I was just watching some weird kind of stalker movie or something. <laughs> right. And, and so that's why, so that's and use the word franchise or something. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a franchise there. And um, you know, and if you don't kind of wrap your head around what that is, well then you're kind of doing a disservice to why you're calling it that. And so it's a long winded way of saying, I just kind of accepted that if you're going to call it smashing pumpkins, then it comes with expectations and those are good things. And so that's what I like about the new record is once again, we've kind of flown in the face of those expectations, but there's a lot more connection to our past than people who think the band is only a guitar band would, would assume. Thinking about the weight of the band and expectations in hindsight, what are your thoughts about when you broke up the band in 2000? 
Is it something you regret in hindsight or was that the right move at the right time? I do, I do regret it because I, I do think continuity is important. Um, I'll try to be, it's, it's probably some comes off a little, a little bit of as a rom-com thing, but I think once you form a relationship with an audience, um, they want to go on that journey with you. And the bands that have stayed together, uh, Foo Fighters is an example, uh, uh, Pearl Jam's another example. You reap a chili peppers, you reap a certain benefit from just enduring. Because in a way, you're there with your, your fans every step along the way as they go through their life. And so when you break up the band, there's, there's a loss there. It's like, it's like saying that the thing that they believed in could make it through. And I'm not saying they go on without you, but of course they kind of go off and do something else, you know? So I think it was a bad idea to break that social contract. Um, it probably would have been best if we just put the thing down for four or five years and picked it back up. But me personally, I needed to get out of it. I mean, it was a, it was a toxic thing at the time. Um, and ultimately, it's turned to be a good thing for us personally, because I think when we were able to put it back together, we brought a lot of different appreciation. Soldiering on. Um, still there? We're still oh, here. Oh. Here's a question for you. It's, it's 2020. What is alternative in 2020? Uh, well, you have to take the question one of two ways. Is it, is it the name that eventually, uh, you know, there was that period Remember James, like MTV was trying to come up with a word like postmodern or like right, exactly. It eventually became alternative, but alternative existed like the Cure were alternative before there was a word. Heck, the Iggy and the Stooges were alternative before there was a word. So there's the business of what is alternative, um, and that's pretty established at this point. You know, it's kind of like counterculture music. Is it alternative in the way that I conceived of it in the beginning? Absolutely not. It's it's mainstream music. I put this way, I don't think there's an alternative counterculture on the mainstream surface. I know there's an underground alternative culture, there always is, but I don't see it anymore in what I would construe as alternative culture. And that's just because like rock and roll or psychedelic rock or some point, it just be, at some point it, it just graduates into the mainstream. And, and, and every year since it's graduated in the mainstream, its messages have been blunted. Sure. You talked about the acrimonious period around 2009 with Jimmy. Fast forward to 2018, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, Billy Corgan, and Jeff Schroeder are Smashing Pumpkins. Does age mellow all those old wounds? Like, are you guys all firing at all cylinders? Is it like 1988 again when you get in the same room as Jimmy and James? Uh, no, I mean, I think the circumstances are different, but I don't, I don't think we've mellowed. <laughs> I don't think we've mellowed at all. I think we just we grew up to accept that we weren't going to change. Jimmy is pretty much the same guy I met in 1988. And so is James, the same guy I met in 1987. They're pretty much the same people. Is that comforting? You know, I think if you put it within the dynamics of a family, it is, you know, you're cool that uncle Steve is the weird uncle, you know, and <laughs> uncle James is the weird cousin you know, or brother. It's, it's totally fine. Uh, as I was saying to somebody the other day, um, you know, at some point I had to accept that whatever alchemically happens with James and Jimmy in the room. And of course, you know, and I'm not, I'm not here to fight that anymore. I kind of like it. Um, I like that. I don't understand it. Does it make sense? It's like, I, I don't need to know. There was a time where I wanted to understand like why these people who drove me insane personally were the same people I wanted to get in a room and make music with. And at some point that obviously 
disrupted what we were trying to accomplish. I think now that we've kind of accepted each other as we are as individuals, we just get on with the business of what we're really good at, which is making music. As, as people, I can't vouch much for us at all. <laughs> but, um, you know, I just finished Rob Halford of Judas Priest's book, and he, you know, he goes into the politics of Judas Priest, and it's, I mean, you could just replace the names, you know? You know, one one person's complaining and one person's, you know, mad about the deli train. It's just like, my God, is it every band like this? And maybe it is. It's like so, that voluntary, uh, you've, you've built a voluntary family is essentially what's happened, right? Especially after 30 years of being in and out with each other. It's, I mean, they are literally as much your brothers yeah. as they are your your drummer and your guitar player, right? Well, Dar Darcy Retsky once famously said that being in a band is like being married to three people that you don't like. <laughs> So 2018. And I was like, that sounds pretty accurate, yeah. Shiny and Oh So Bright was in 2018. Here we are in 2020 with Sear on the way, a double album. You have always struck me as a guy who just never stops writing. I mean, the fact that two years after this album comes out, you're hitting with a double album. Are you constantly scribbling stuff down? Are you constantly finding inspiration in and around your, your surroundings? Actually not. Um, I've just become very efficient that when I do work, I, I produce a lot in a short period of time. Um, I was doing the math the other day. I, I did a solo album with Rick Rubin a few years back called um, OG Lala, which kind of started this period. So since that time, I've released OG Lala, then volume one with the pumpkins in it, and then a double solo acoustic album called Cotillions. And now this double album, Sears, coming out. And then we're in the studio currently working on, I think, about 45 songs at the same time. Um, so I wrote a friend the other day. I was like, wow, since that Rick Rubin thing, I mean, that's, that's over a hundred songs in about three ish years. That's pretty wild. But honestly, that's, that's similar to the pace that I was running in the mid nineties. So somehow I've wandered back into that pace, but yeah, I'm, I'm really efficient. I, um, cause you know, we, we have, we have a tea house here in, up in Highland Park in Chicago. And, uh, so, you know, I'm doing that part of the day. I, I have my wrestling company, the NWA, so I'm doing that part of the day. And then I've also been working on a book, so I do that part of the day. So I think just whatever I go into, I go into it hard, and then I come out and do something else. Yeah, I was going to say, like, on top of writing all of these songs and this new record, you also wrote and created an animated series, like an accompanying piece to the new record. Tell me about this. Um, well, it was COVID times, and nobody wanted to get in a room to shoot a video. It was when it was really, really bad. So we were like, we came up with the idea of doing a five part animated series. It's kind of like uh, I call it dystopic Scooby-Doo. Um, I was going to say it looks, it looks like eighties uh, Sunday morning cartoon kind of vibe to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, it's good. Fun. And, and then of course, once things started to loosen back up and people started going back to video production, then we got, went ahead and made a video kind of on the fly. So it's a little confusing in that we have this animated series, which is releasing new songs to go with also just putting out conventional, typical, you know, walking through the desert slowly videos. I mean, it's 2020. It's, it, it, I mean, the goal is nowadays is just release content, right? Like push content, content, content. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, I know it's a tough time for everybody, but I think, I think at the end of the day, if you can just keep moving, I think that becomes part of the story. And I do, I have seen, at least from our fans, they appreciate that we're kind of not sitting around moaning. We're just kind of getting on. So there's something sort of right about everybody knows it's a tough time, you know? Um, everybody knows it's not so easy to put out music in a pandemic and all that type of stuff and do the normal stuff. You know, here we are all, all talking remotely. We're probably in the past, we would have at least gotten in the same room. 
I think I think the audience, uh, and I mean that loosely, is just sort of accepting that just things are different now, and, and and they're cool with that. So I appreciate that. And so the good part is, that, you know, we we did something with the animated series that we probably wouldn't have done without it. We live in this interesting or just different time from when we grew up, where songs are released a la carte. Already, we've heard a handful of songs from Sear. Does that bother you at all? Because to me, you've always been someone who has a very tight vision of what you're putting out there. I'm imagining that the sequencing of Sear is very thoughtfully arranged. Does it bother you to have the songs just kind of floating out there without the contextual or the context of the full album? No, actually, it was my idea. Um, I actually, uh, fights probably isn't the right way to put it, but I got a lot of fights behind the scenes, not with the band, more on the business side about how I wanted to release the record. Um, you know, by and large, historically, the Pumpkins have not gotten good reviews. So we don't necessarily consider that as a as a release strategy, like, oh, what are the reviews going to be? Because, you know, as I like to point out, you know, uh, Rolling Stone, Melancholy, two and a half stars, you know, go go back in time, sign these three stars, you know, like some of the best albums we ever made got drummed by the critics because we were in step with the, with the hipster crowd. So when we think of our release strategy, we're very much thinking about, well, well how will the fans not only how will the fans receive what should be a new kind of approach to music, but are they going to be able to go around, go back into, into our bigger fan communities and tell people that what they're hearing is worth paying attention to. Cause you know, it's very much about sharing these days. And if you don't, and if you think you don't see things being shared, you know, those AI logarithms, they don't, they don't, you know, they don't kick in. So you really need your fans to be on board with what you're doing. Now that doesn't mean we musically compromise, but the, point is is i thought this music would go down better if we spread it out a little bit and i'll give you a quick example we put out the first couple songs and here i, I mean i literally could have written the script for you here comes the moaning where are the guitars why are there too many synthesizers where are the drum fills right right now we just had a, a song come out anno santana and now it's like now they're now they're moaning about something else like it's like weird it's like i can almost and i keep saying it's a 20 song record It'd be like if you heard if you heard melancholy and the first song you heard was 1979 oh you know it's here comes the new wave my god you know he's off this heavy metal trip you know what i mean because we have such a diverse fan base there's always some segment mad about the thing that you think they should get i mean there are there are smashing pumpkins fans who they're just adore people they don't like the heavy side of the band at all they just want the pretty ballads and all that stuff and there are other people they just want you know geek you know they just want xyu they want heavy metal all day long and and they really don't want and and our whole thing is like look it's the age of playlists just make your own playlist like you don't have so so the point is rolling it out this way was a way to let the audience kind of take a different journey and it's pretty much played out the way i would have figured the response to the songs has been great which you can never calculate but in terms of people's reactions to the musical styles it's been super predictable it definitely seems uh, from what i've heard more i mean for lack of a better term like a dancier version of Smashing Pumpkins than what we've seen in the past. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like we've always done that. It's just it's, it's just different uh, modes, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, by and large, people don't think of us that way. But right. I, I would point to plenty of songs that have, I mean, Perfect as a single was totally has a dance beat, you know. Uh, we used to call it the James Brown beat, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't feel defensive about it. It's just like, 
I, I get it. We live in a world where people come to de a determination about your group through the songs they hear or the way they, you know, intersected with you in the past. And, and somehow you always have to navigate their perceptions. Um, look, uh, as James can tell you, you know, at the end of the day, it's about whether or not people want to listen to the music. It's, it's amazing. Like when we put out 1979, a bunch of people moaned, right? Because it was too electronic-y or that was a big talking point in 1995, like guitars versus electronics. Okay, well, it's 25 years later. It's like electronics is the predominant musical style. So we were, were we ahead of our time? Were the people moaning at the time wrong? No, it's just, it's just the way it works, right? So for us, it's more about being in a, in a, in a contemporary frame. Um, and we're pretty aware of, you know, I put out records under the name Smashing Pumpkins for the last 13 plus years. And I've dealt with many program directors who are more than happy to play uh, Bullet with Butterfly Wings, Zero, Cherub Rock. But if I hand them a song that sounds like classic Smashing Pumpkins, and I'm talking, I'm using their language, not mine, they won't play it. And when I go, why won't you play it? It's a good single. They go, well, it doesn't sound like, and they name some, you know, some electronic duo from Norway. You know what I mean? <laughs> James is laughing because he knows exactly what I I'm know talking. it's true. I know it's true. Such and I'll literally say to the program directors, if you're willing to play Bullet with Butterfly Wings, why won't you play basically contemporary? Ver well, it doesn't sound fresh and da-da-da-da-da. And those are recurrence and blah, blah, blah. And so at the end of the day, we're like, well, we're just going to go back to making singles. Because that's how we got here in the first place. I mean, that's why I always remind people. It's like people forget Landslide and Disarm and I. You know, there were a lot of singles that didn't have big, massive guitars. And we're pretty good at making singles. So we were just like, when we went in to make this album, we're just gonna, we're going to make singles. Billy, I know we have you for borrowed time. Before we let you go, this is John's first time meeting you. John, what's your favorite Smashing Pumpkins moment or memory? This is your oh, chance to, to share it with Billy Corgan. Well, my favorite Smashing Pumpkins tune will always and forever be Mayonnaise. But my favorite, like, Pumpkins memory would be uh, the first mixtape I ever got from a girl. And also, how dare you put me on the spot, James? But the first mixtape I ever got from a girl, track number one was Today. And I was not in uh, Alternative World yet. I was still, like, I still had pretty bad taste in music, if we're being honest. And that was one of those songs that one, I knew I had to like because I had, if she liked it, I had to like it. But it was also, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like the gateway drug into alternative music where it was like, all of a sudden it was like, this is, all right, this is cool. This, I, I want more of this. So I, I, that has to be my favorite Smashing Pumpkins memory is that it got me my, my first girlfriend, right? Do you know, <laughs> do you know, do you know the story about, about how mayonnaise was written? No. Do you know that story? Mm-mm. Up, he's frozen. Or am I, I frozen? I, you might be frozen. I can hear you. I think, I think Billy's actually frozen. Oh, shit. I, I, I want to hear the story. Yeah, I want the mayonnaise story. Give me the mayonnaise story. Should I just keep saying it until he hears it? Yeah, Give me the mayonnaise is. story. Give oh. us the mayonnaise story. Oh, sorry. I froze or you froze or something. <laughs> okay, so you don't know the mayonnaise story? I do not know the mayonnaise story. Okay. It's a true story. So um, we were in Japan on tour, and James, uh, I think we'd just gotten there. And I think we'd come from Chicago, and James Eha called me in my hotel room, and he said, hey, I got this, uh, I got this, uh, I think he had a couple songs, actually, that he had demoed out at home, and he, he wanted to play them for me. So this is in the age of, like, a, you know, like a 
tape Walkman and the headphones. And so he came to my room and, and I put on the headphones and um, I heard Mayonnaise for the first time, his home demo. And I, I kid you not, I immediately, and this usually doesn't happen, I immediately heard the melody of the song. Like instantly, it was the weirdest thing. It was like, it's like, I'd never heard this piece of music before. I didn't even hear it a second time. It was literally, I heard the music and I was like, da, 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 da. it was like, boom, like that. And usually um, uh, when that happens, sometimes you get paranoid because you think, oh my God, this is so good and I'm going to forget it. But it was so seared in my head that, that when we got back to Chicago months later and we worked on the song, it was like, I completely recalled the moment. And, and uh, yeah, so it was a beautiful, beautiful thing there. And that's, you know, when, when he and I would kind of connect on those levels, he would always bring this other thing that, you know, I probably wouldn't have brought myself. And so, um, yeah. And, and, and a lot of people point to that as their favorite song. It's pretty cool because we, we, we actually, the record company, cause we were, we were three singles deep on Siamese dream in the record company. Cause it was selling like crazy. The record company actually wanted to go to a fourth single, but mayonnaise wasn't conceived like a single. And I remember one time driving in LA and they played it on K rock, but they had butchered the song. Like somebody had done some kind of crazy, creepy edit. Where the, where the beginning was taken out and I think they played it like two times and they dropped it and that was the end of it was, there was never a single, but looking back, it probably should have been a single. Although you would have risked having to do a radio edit, which could, like you said, you, what you heard could have gone horribly awry. So I, I could be wrong, but I don't think the pumpkins have ever done a radio edit. Um, it's been, certainly been proposed and, 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 you know, but yeah, I, I think when, I think when we think we have a single, we'll, we'll tend to look at the time and, and take that into consideration, you know, or were the Beatles like 220? You know, our, most of our singles were under four. Um, but Mayonnaise, I think, was five with the intro and the outro and stuff like that. But they never came to me and asked me to edit it. They just butchered it, just to try to make it work. That has to be uncomfortable. Um, well, I, I, I called the record company after that and I said, you know, what the you know what was that? And they were like, oh, they did it. It's not our fault. You know, like very, very like crossing their fingers, hoping it would work kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the new record comes out at the end of November. It's going to be called Sierra. A double album, 20 tracks. We are very excited for this. Uh, Billy Corgan, 30 years of Smashing Pumpkins. Last question before we take you out. What do you want the legacy of Smashing Pumpkins to be when it's all said and done? Um, I probably sound crazy saying it, um, and, it's, and, it, and I haven't been proven right yet, but I think at the end of the day, I think, <clears throat> let me start here. Whenever you talk about history, and this is the, what this program is about, it's usually you have to take things in, in their time because that's the best way you can compare things. Like, you know, would a band from the 60s have made the same choices that we made in the 90s, stuff like that? So I think it's, it's usually generational. It's not always a fair thing, but it's probably the best indicator. I think at the end of the day, when, it, when all the smoke is cleared, uh, you know, all the hipsters have died, you know, they're, 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 or, or their or their beards have turned gray. <laughs> white. <Hey. laughs> when, when all is said and done, when all is said and done, I believe, and I've been saying it for years, I believe that my band will go down as the preeminent musical group of our generation. I have no problem saying that uh, Kurt Cobain was, was the most talented. I mean, incredible songwriter, incredible voice, and unfortunately, he was taken too soon. Um, have no problem with saying that. But I believe we are the dominant musical group. We've covered more ground. We've had more success over a longer period of time. And, and I wish Kurt had lived because 
I would love to have made that comparison. So we can only go with what we have. We always felt we were the dominant musical group. Um, and, and I think in, if you go in, cause it's the world I grew up in. If you, if you can, if you, if people think of the great bands of the 1960s, which again, this is my reference. If you think of the great band of the sixties, the Beatles and Stones, that's easy to come to. But when you get to that, when you get beyond the Beatles and Stones, it's like you get into the conversations like the Kinks and the Who. To us, to us, we were always more like a band like the Who, where we covered a tremendous amount of ground um, and we made music that was sort of coming from a different place, but we were able to be popular in, 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 in our own way. Um, and we could choose to be popular, we could choose to be pains in the asses, but, but it was kind of our choice who we wanted to be. And in that, you know, you know, a band like The Who was an inspiration because Pete could write something like Quadrophini, but then he could also write, you know, silly songs. Um, and so I, I see us more in that in that model. And I do, and I really do believe, and I, you know, I've had this conversation even with Howard Stern. When when all the smoke is clear, people will see us as a dominant force. Um, and people forget, and it's it's not a defensive thing to say, but people forget that we we came up in an age of technology becoming a much bigger part of how people connected with music. We were the first generation to really go through that. Uh, we were the last kind of truly MTV generation. So there's this map and our position, which was a very contrarian punk position, didn't necessarily play well with those forces because it was more about clickbait. Um, you know, we were basically at the forefront of what became clickbait. And so, yeah, in many ways, clickbait, help define who we were in good, but also in bad ways. So as the smoke is clearing around a lot of the political stuff that has gone on over the years, and as we've settled into our, our uh, centurion position of just being good music makers and, and keeping the band as intact as we can, I think people are starting to see that the band's musical strength is, is the strength. It isn't drama. It isn't the silly things that I've said or done. It really has always been about the music. And I think when all is said and done, it will be about the music. And that that's that would make me proud. Anything less, I think, would be failure. Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. The History of Alternative podcast is recorded at the 101 WKQX Studios in Chicago. Subscribe on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't do drugs. Stay in school.